A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi, in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. They've left me alone again. It keeps happening. Must be my deodorant. But this time I've dragged Beth with me. So, Beth, morning. How are you doing? Hi, Chris. Yes, I'm good. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm, I'm surviving. <laughs> but um, who have we got on today? What are we chat- chatting about? Yeah, so we've got something a little bit different for you guys today. Um, we're going to be talking about historical fiction. Um, so our guest today is Annika Scott, who's a journalist and novelist. Her previous books include The German Heiress and Soviet Sisters. And she's here today to talk about her new book, Sinners of Starlight City. Hi, Annika. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we, we've been uh, chatting quite a bit over about over the last couple of days on this subject. And it's um, we're going to be talking about the 1933 uh, Chicago World Fair, aren't we? Yep, that is uh, one of the most fascinating environments and topics. And I think very few people kind of realize what uh, all these amazing factors that came together in history in one place. So that's what we'll kind of dig into today. So, um, for mo- I mean, I didn't, I'd only heard of one World Fair before, but that was only linked to the serial killer who was murdering visitors. But um, what, can you tell us about any of the previous World Fairs and what, what, they are, what they're all about? Yeah, I mean, in general, the World's Fairs were created just to um, kind of highlight the uh, advancements that people had made in technology, um, also culturally, architecturally. So um, you might remember the Crystal Palace, you know, in London. These were all kind of World's Fair things to demonstrate how, um, you know, how many advancements, you know, the mankind in general or people had had made. So, um, you know, they jumped around to different countries and different places could highlight what they were doing special. So, for instance, at one of the famous World's Fairs, um, you know, Krupp, the steel, the German steel works and weapons manufacturing people demonstrated their huge cannons. And I even think that was at the same fair in London, if I recall, um, where the Crystal Palace had been built. And, um, you know, so you have this contrast between beautiful architecture, amazing kind of, you know, demonstrating things like telephones, telegraphs, things that were new at the time. And then you have weaponry. I mean, you, you, you might have this, this really big um, um, line of, of of amazing but sometimes disturbing things that a World's Fair would show people who came to visit. And so the fair that you'd mentioned before, where the serial killer had been, that was also in Chicago. That was in 1893. And um, I, I absolutely recommend anybody interested in World's Fairs to read Eric Larson's Devil in the White City. That was, um, you know, my favorite book about 
that World's Fair, a nonfiction book about uh, a World's Fair, and um, that is where where a serial killer had been operating, sort of on the on the outskirts of the fair. And it was also a, a, an inspiration for the book that I wrote. Now we're so excited to delve into all this with you, and so we're going to talk in depth about the Chicago World Fair specifically, as we mentioned, and. You know, just thinking about this era, the 1930s, a time of, well, the 1920s, a time of huge change as well, post the First World War, 1930s and 20s, we're seeing the rise of particular nationalist regimes. So there's a huge amount going on um, at that time. So can you kind of talk us through what the challenges were at the time of this 1933 World Fair for Chicago hosting? What was kind of going on domestically, economically? What kind of, you know, things um, did they have to kind of bear in mind as they were trying to create this event? Yeah, it, it was one of those projects you can imagine that takes years to plan. So so when Chicago uh, decided that it wanted to host um, a world's, the, United, the World's Fair in the United States, um, they, it was still the 1920s, um, before the stock market crash, which was 1929. So, so when, when they were planning the fair, they thought they might have the money. <laughs> and that was the, you know, the jazz age, the time when, when everybody thought they were getting rich. Um, so in 1929, when the stock market crashed, um, the world fell, fell into the Great Depression. And, um, so that was not the greatest time to plan something that people didn't know if it would make any money. It was going to cost money. So the, the organizers of the fair had to, um, do a lot of convincing. Um, and this ends up being one of the first world's fairs that was driven by companies instead of by the country itself. So the United States didn't necessarily say we are going to fund the World's Fair in Chicago. Chicago had to go ask General Electric or any of these other big companies um, that existed at the time and said, are you going to come to the fair, show, you know, build pavilions and show people stuff and sell things, you know, what what you do at a fair. And and in that way, we can fund it because that was the only way that they could they could pay these costs. So um, that was actually an innovation that happened at that time. And um, and that is one of the reasons that so many of these big, big companies at the time had built uh, uh, pavilions at the fair. And then the other problem was, of course, that almost all the countries in the world were poor, you know, right then. It was after World War One. Europe had been so swallowed up uh, in, 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 in blood and in wars. Even when the Jazz Age came, people had, uh, people recovered somewhat. It was still a relatively poor time for most people. And, and certainly when the Depression hit, uh, the, the, the worldwide economic crisis, the countries that Chicago went to and said, please, can you come and build a pavilion at our World's Fair? You know, they're like, no, <laughs> you know, we're not going to do that. So, uh, so, so a lot of the international pavilions that Chicago ended up building, uh, were done also by, uh, individuals who were interested in certain countries or people who had collections of things from certain countries because they traveled. And once that started, then sometimes the country itself, we could say maybe Japan or somewhere, a country itself would come and then add to it so that there ended up being, uh, you know, this international feel to the fair. 
Um, but it was unofficial in the sense that many countries themselves as governments didn't participate. But Italy was one of them. They were they were a big exception. They were they were really big behind the fair. But we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah, because Mussolini he'd been in, he'd been in power for about eleven ish years by that point and wanted to show off Italy. He manipulates uh, sort of the tech there to as a sort of a propaganda tool, doesn't he? Yeah, that was it. Was such a, a, a fascinating and disturbing time, really. I think when you look at kind of the early years of of nationalism and fascism, um, Italy was was the the flagship country for 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 fascism. Of course, you know the the, the so Mussolini had a lot of time to develop the image of the country that he wanted the world to see, and the World's Fair in Chicago ended up being a very good vehicle for for Italy to show itself as modern and futuristic and, you know, sort of a global power instead of what Italy actually was at the time. Um, after World War One, Italy had fought on this or in World War One, Italy had fought on on the Allied side. And they had expected to to sort of get more of the spoils of war than they actually did once once the Allied side won and Germany was defeated. So um, Italy was actually a bit, um, you know, miffed by that. They were and 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 their pride was hurt. So the the part of the role of the fascists at the time was to to build up this kind of national pride, and that was something that they wanted to do not only within Italy but for Italians around the world. And the United States um, had at the time and still has a very large uh, population of Italians. There were so many that that emigrated, including part of my family, that emigrated to the United States from from parts of Italy. So. So and in, in, and they ended up in the cities. Chicago, in particular, was a city with lots of Italians there, and so the World's Fair ended up being a kind of thread that that you know the the, the fascist government in Italy saw that they could um, reach out to their sort of you know fellow fellow Italians who who were in the United States, and then um, also use the fair as a vehicle. To show the entire world, you know, what sort of country they say anyway Italy had become, and and so they went all in, kind of manipulating how Italy was was to be seen by the world. Um, Italy was one of the countries that sent. I don't know if it was the most exhibits to the fair, but they sent hundreds of of different exhibits to the fair to demonstrate. Um, technological advances um, by Marconi and others, you know, in Italy, um, and air travel in particular was a very new, very exciting thing in the 1930s, and and that is is the biggest thing that uh, Italy was able to do at the fair was um, connect Mussolini himself and Italy, fascist Italy, to the exciting advances happening in air travel. And that ties really well into our next question, because um, as you're saying, these events offered such an opportunity for um, fascist regimes to show a demonstration of technology, of power. And so we're thinking about Germany now, because, you know, obviously there are examples such as later on in the 30s, um, the infamous spectacle and hosting of the Olympics 
by Nazi Germany. So, you know, they would go on to hold such propaganda, you know, events as part of major European and world occasions. And um, so kind of why why was Germany not involved in the in the Chicago fair? It'd be interesting to dive into that a little bit. Yeah, Germany was in in a, in a lot more turmoil uh, at the time, and um, I live in Germany now, uh, and and I've been here a long time, and 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 I've gotten the opportunity to to learn so much history and some of the um, real problems that they had here uh, um, at that time. So after World War One, there was um, almost civil war type violence happening in Germany. And, uh, the Weimar Republic, uh, the, the first democratic, uh, government in Germany was maybe not as weak as people tend to call it later, but, but it was on unstable ground because there were so many forces that wanted it to fail. So, um, obviously the biggest force that wanted it to fail was the Nazi party. And in, uh, at the time that the World's Fair was being planned by Chicago, uh, in Germany just was not in a condition to be able to, to, to send, uh, um, you know, money or, or, or any kind of investment into, into something like that. Germany was still paying reparations. Um, in the late 1920s, it was, it was actually occupied, um, by France and, um, you know, along the Western part of Germany and, so uh it, it just wasn't economically capable of of doing much. Um and in 1933 itself, when that rolled around, I think we can all recall that that is when um the Nazi party was you got majority power in, in the parliament in the sense that then um Hitler could be appointed chancellor. And that was very fresh. That was very, very new. So when, when the World's Fair, uh, opened, um, Hitler had been chancellor, I think, a few months. And, uh, Germany did not have an, uh, an official presence at the fair in, in 1933 in the way that, that Mussolini, uh, uh, Mussolini's Italy did. But, um, Nazi Germany was watching Italy. Nazi Germany learned so much from fascist Italy. Um, I think now when we look back, people see Hitler first and then Mussolini, but it was actually the other way around, right? I mean, uh, Hitler had to learn and, and Mussolini had already had, you know, over a decade to cement his power and also to demonstrate how do you present your country to the world? This, this new, because at the time, what the fascists thought they had as a as an advantage is that they're new they're not part of the old systems and people a lot of people wanted that they wanted something new so how do you how do you use propaganda how do you use the new technologies like radio like movies and then also things like you know you know airplanes technology that sort of thing in order to show the world that that the fascists are a new thing, creating a new society with new people, new kinds of people. So, so, you know, Nazi Germany did not have the opportunity to show that at the World's Fair because Germany was just getting on its feet. Nazi Germany, I should say, was just getting on its feet and had not consolidated enough to be able to do that. But like you said, by the Olympics, um, 
1936, they were ready. You know, then then they had that big uh, um, stage that they could present themselves to to the world on. But in 1933, it was still Italy uh, at the front, and they did it at the fair. The 1936 Olympics and the World Fair, though, was that they did send uh, Graf Zeppelin, which was uh, quite a demonstration of German power. Yeah, they did that um, towards the end of the fair. Uh, in 33. That was in, the fair was open for about four months, I'd say, from May to about the 1st of November. In So over the summer of 1933, the fair was open. And, and the Zeppelin, I think, showed up in, a, in about October. So that was, you know, it gave it a little time, but Germany then ended up sending that. There was also a very big, um, it wasn't, it's not funny in a funny sense, but, but amusing anecdote that the there was a sort of pavilion or place where Germany um, had some exhibits, or at least there were German exhibits. And there was a fight between people who wanted to raise the, the swastika flag and the people who wanted to raise the sort of democratic Germany flag. And and that was actually a real thing happening that that people were for and against it. There were, you know, kind of fisticuffs about it out in the fair and and media about it. So so the controversy controversy of of Nazi Germany was there, um, certainly there. And then when the Zeppelin came, that was absolutely sort of a show. And I feel it's I feel it's almost like a a premonition sort of 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 the the sort of power that they that they were going to claim that Nazi Germany was going to claim um you know over the world anyway and um so it was quite a symbolic thing but it wasn't more than that at the time to have the the zeppelin with the with the swastika on the side over the world's fair but at the time uh, in 1933, people didn't have the same sensibilities to these symbols as we do now. You know, they were they were still new, and you know, people would sing a fascist song or or raise their arm in the fascist salute, and sometimes not even think about what that meant. So it was a very, in a way, it was more naive time in the sense that people just didn't have the experience that we have now. I just know that the fair started, and after about a month, there was a meeting in Berlin with. Well, look what Italy's doing. We've got to, we've got to do something. What can we do? We can send a Zeppelin. Done. That's, that'll take five minutes. Get it in the air. Go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, to me, I, I feel like, uh, maybe I'm overstretching, but it feels like, uh, sometimes Hitler and Hitler and Mussolini that there was, there was some jealousy on the part of Hitler of what, what Mussolini and what fascist Italy was able to achieve. So certainly, um, the, the, what Italy ended up doing was sending a a, a squadron of seaplanes, twenty. It ended up being twenty four seaplanes that flew uh, in formation across the North Atlantic from Italy over Europe, over the North Atlantic, over Canada to Chicago to the World's Fair. And at the time, this was a big deal. It was a huge deal. The, basically, the entire world was watching this. Um, and this was the era of, of people doing these dramatic air flights. We have Amelia Earhart. We have, you know, Lindbergh and all that kind of uh, fascination, the public fascination with air, tra- air travel and with flight. And, um, and, you know, the fact that Italy was the country that did this 
and and not Germany. I bet I was kind of galling <laughs> to you know to the to the Germans at the time. And so the Zeppelin was sort of um, maybe an answer to that. What can we do on the fly? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what what kind of exhibits were they showing at the fair in 33? There were everything you can think of. I think that the um the the more fun exhibits had to do with um in a way the things that people could interact with. And they were not always the the kinds of things that we would think are appropriate today. But at the time, people thought it was interesting. So, for instance, the um, there was an army camp or something that resembled an army camp, um, you know, where they had tents and they would have, you know, the the soldiers on horseback still, uh, you know, riding around. Um, and there was a part of that where they had um, like a Native American camp also where um, Native Americans would show people how to do various um, um, crafts and how to make various things or um, traditions. And, uh, you know, looking at that today, that definitely feels on the edge of, of you know, exploitation of, of, of people at the time. Um, at least by the, the, the sources that I had, had been able to read, um, people were, were actually quite proud to be able to show, you know, what, what traditions they had or, or whatever it might be that they, that they were able to show. So there were, there were those sorts of exhibits. There were also lots about medicine. Um, there, there were just a lot of advances in medicine at the time. And, uh, so the, so some of them were I, I didn't know about myself until I had started kind of researching that, for instance, what they were uh, advances in, in cardiology, what they were able to do with um, with heart uh, surgery even um, back then. And so uh, there were, I believe, every day or, or every other day, there were just lectures that they would give on various kinds of medical, uh, medical advancements. People were extremely interested in that. And, uh, one of the big ones there was the, uh, the incubators where premature babies were, uh, were kept until they were, uh, big enough to, uh, <laughs> to leave on their own. This, was another one of those exhibits that walked that line between yes we want to know what what amazing advances in medicine that that the world now has and also they're exhibiting babies you know at the fair so people would would pay 25 cents and walk in and um see through a, ga- a glass window uh incubators these sort of metallic they were metal glass boxes and uh and the babies themselves might be put in a little uh like a like a, a sofa or something where they were kind of laying there bundled up and people could just sort of walk by and look at them um and and you know, when I was learning about them, I, it made me think of social media and how some people put their babies out there for everybody to see. So it's not unheard of for that to happen even now. But back then, it was done with this idea that, um, you know, we want uh, people to know uh, what 
the world is capable of doing and that these children are worth saving. Um, before that, before the, the pediatrics were, were more advanced, people just thought if, if a kid was, was born early and they can't live, well, that's it. That's God's will. Um, and, and the children were, were called, you know, weaklings that they just shouldn't live. So, so it was actually a, a battle with, with, uh, the, for the doctors and nurses to, to convince some people that these babies deserve to live. And look, we can do it. It, it takes a lot of resources to save these babies, but it can be done. And so they, that was part of what the World's Fair, not only in Chicago, but many different World's Fairs did when they, when they put these, these premature babies on display. So that was one of the more, more popular, um, exhibits that was at that Chicago fair. Now that's something I, um, I was never aware of with, with this fair or the others. I mean, as you say, many of them or perhaps all of them there's all these things you can look at and those ethical questions of who they were putting on display but yeah I hadn't heard about the premature babies before and um, moving on to um a- another kind of display part of the fair um, and talking about um women's roles in in the fairs and women on displays as a such specifically um the the Chicago 1933 fair and um, included ballet dancers for example could you tell us a little bit about that and and women being you know on display for the fair and the, the kind of questions and problematics around that yeah that was one of the most surprising things when I was researching the fair um for my book, I, I actually didn't realize that that the main character I was writing was going to be a burlesque dancer until I started reading about them. Um, it was completely fascinating. The the I can, I can just use an example. The the premier dancer at the Chicago Fair was a woman named Sally Rand, and she had been sort of a you know a minor actress, performer, dancer. Um, before that, and she became famous by basically dressing up is the wrong term as Lady Godiva. She on a white horse and riding into the fair uh, without being invited. She just did it, you know, got on a white horse, basically naked, rode into the fair uh, to its opening night party so that all the important people who were who were at the fair that night saw who she was. They said, we've got to hire this woman right now. Um, and she had then, um, basically she made the most money at the fair of any other, of any other woman. And she was just an amazing person to begin with. She, she negotiated her contracts. She, she made sure that she got what she wanted out of this work. And she was famous for the, or became famous for a fan dance, you know, these big feathered fans and they, you know, they dance and kind of hide themselves and are all very, um, seductive and, and sort of this peekaboo. So she didn't strip tease. She just came out in a, sometimes it was like a, almost like a bodysuit, but so sheer that you couldn't, you know, they, in the lighting, it looked like the dancers were nude. Um, and then, and then they would, she would, you know, dance with these fans and later with sort of big bubbles or, or balls that look like bubbles. 
And, um, but she was a good dancer too. So it wasn't just sort of cheap entertainment in that sense. It was, these are, these are women who are talented. They're good at what they do. And, um, they know how to use their sensuality and how to use their bodies in the way that they choose. And that really was the difference between, um, someone being exploited, obviously, is someone who is forced to, to use their body. And these women, the, the, the different dancers at the fair who chose the work, there weren't many options, obviously, for women. Um, women's work, uh, unless you were especially, especially lucky or talented or had a lot of money. But within this sphere of the arts that these women did, they were, um, you know, able to become famous in that. And, and so my, my favorite dancer from the World's Fair was, um, uh, called Little Egypt. She is, uh, or was a, at the 1933 fair, she was over 60 years old. And, uh, I, when I learned about her, I thought, my goodness, what? Um, but this was a, a woman who still did, uh, what is, what was the belly dance, you know, at her age. And, you know, I am not, quite quite that old yet but I still don't think I could belly dance very well you know so it was really amazing that she she did this and she was uh very or became famous at Chicago's first world's fair at the 1893 world's fair the one with the you know the serial killer uh story around it she became famous as a young woman dancing the belly dance at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. She returned 40 years later in 1933 to the World's Fair to sort of reprise her show. And her fans came and and I just thought that was the most wonderful thing ever when you think about how um how a woman could be you know, could have a career like that. And they made a movie about her later, you know, in the 1950s. Um, so, so, you know, the, the World's Fair was able to, you know, to, to give a platform to, or, or a stage to these women who, who really took that, you know, able, were able to take that power, um, and, and use it for themselves. And they were, uh, you know, they had their enemies, of course, because American society is prudish in a, in a way. Chicago wasn't. And this was still sort of, you know, the, the, the spirit of the jazz age was still there in the sense that, you know, people themselves still loved, you know, the, the sort of naughty, um, you, you know, dancing and, and, and the wildness. But the society in general, there were people who um who who got these dancers arrested they were pulled out of the fair they were they were fined repeatedly um i i don't remember how many times sally rand was arrested at, in that summer but she i think it was multiple times she was arrested so you know and every time the judge would say fine you know 25 dollar fine and 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 you know, don't go on stage nude anymore. And the dancers would be like, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. And then they would go back to the fair and do, uh, and do what, what they're, do their shows the way they, the way they wanted to. So, so this was just such a fascinating environment and, and just such a fascinating group of women. And, and I ended up 
you know, wanting to, to, to write a story where the main character was really one of these strong women from that world. And that's where I got the main character for Sinners of Starlight City. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. No, it's so important to assert their, their own individual agency as well as highlight what was going on in society and the views of society and at the fair. And I imagine what you're saying about the fining there. I mean, $25, I imagine she was making a lot more than that at the show, surely. Oh, yeah. Um, the exact number, I cannot remember what the exact number was, but I'm pretty sure it was something like... She was one of the higher paid people and, and it was at least something like 90 or a hundred dollars a week, which at the time would have been a lot for, you know, certainly for a woman. And, uh, so, you know, the, the, the fines that they, that they gave these women, I don't think they were quite a slap on the wrist. It was certainly money, but it was not, you know, these were misdemeanors. These were not big, you know, <laughs> uh, felonies or anything. Um, but what was so fun is that how the women, um, they in a way ridiculed the, the kind of prudish, uh, society around them. So, so I think there was one situation where the, the women were told not to, not to, to come on stage nude and and then they they went on stage after that wearing kind of ridiculous bloomers and 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 you know just just stuff that was so so utterly absurd that the that the audience was like come on you know you're not gonna don't do that and so so in a way the 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 spirit of of fun and 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 the audience uh the demand um you know was much more important than than you know the the the, the prudes that, that wanted to stop the women um, from doing what they did. Uh, talking of fun stopping, the only vice I have left is the occasional drink. So I can't imagine living through prohibition. But that was still <laughs> sort of rolling on as well. How did, how did the World Fair, I mean, if you want, I mean, especially in England, if you want people to come right, come in and go, we have a bar. Um, so the idea, was it a dry? Was it dry? Yeah, it basically was. But what was happening was, is, is, uh, prohibition was coming to an end. Um, you know, the, the United States had had, uh, the, basically changed its, its laws so that, um, alcohol, even beer was illegal. And that had really, really, um, given the uh given organized crime uh, a a big boost so chicago in particular was known for organized crime the 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 business of producing and selling beer and and harder alcohol was you know made fortunes you know al capone these you know they made they made their fortunes with beer um during prohibition 
but the United States was sick of it by the end. You know, everybody would go to the speakeasies and drink anyway. So at some point, the uh, the country said, look, this was, you know, this is not going to work. Um, but each state had to then ratify peeling back, repealing the laws. So the the, the laws that had, had forbidden alcohol were were being repealed, but it was sort of happening slowly, you could say. So at the time, everybody knew prohibition was almost over, but the laws were still in effect when the World's Fair uh, opened in 1933. So what they did was they built, they still had beer gardens and, and they kind of they might not have called it a beer garden, but that's basically what it was. And and these various nightclubs and things, um, I'm sure there was illegal alcohol flowing through that place, of course. But officially, um, you know, they would be people would be served this kind of near beer, this like the kind of low low alcohol uh, um beer. I think I I I don't know exactly how you know how low, but um, you know, that's what they did was they had this sort of ersatz beer that that uh people sort of pretended to be okay with. But interestingly enough, uh the, the Chicago World's Fair was so popular and so successful that it ended up opening again the following summer in 1934. And that was when uh prohibition was gone. So then they were really able to um, to serve all the all the fun drinks that that people would want. Um, in '33, though, there was still that sort of spirit of of the speakeasy still, and um, in particular, one part of the World's Fair, which was called the um, Streets of Paris, um, was sort of a, a rebuilt Parisian, you know, sort of a marketplace kind of look to it. Um, and that's where the nightclubs were. And that's, that's where the, kind of the action was, or one of the places where the action was at night at the World's Fair, because pe some people would just come in in the evening just to party basically in 1933. So, you know, they were bringing in their kind of secret bottles of things. And, um, that, that, that gave the fair in 33 that, that that feeling that there was still this sort of secrecy, you know, flowing underneath it. That that the whole kind of speakeasy, jazz age prohibition uh, time had, but everybody knew it was about to end. So so there was it was all a little bit more relaxed <laughs> than it had been before. And um, returning to the um, the spectacle of the fair and its reception, I mean, this was in terms of as we talked about the exhibits, um, but also the architecture. Um, Slight diversion, but I was in Seville earlier in the year, and um, one of the places I went to was the Plaza de España, which is a gorgeous, really grand square building fountain, um, which was built for 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 a fair, for an exhibition that was being hosted there. I mean, so thinking about what Chicago did for their for their fair in 1933, and you know the kind of architecture they they may have had. I mean, what did what did the Chicago residents actually think of all this? You know, the the architecture that was created, the the exhibits, the feel of the fair. You know, what was the general reception of the event? It was 
just overwhelmingly um, well well received, and and I think even the people who planned it were very pleasantly surprised. the The architecture at the time was totally fascinating. I really love that era's um, kind of um, yeah. They wanted to move away from the kind of classic uh, um, or federal uh, Roman, you know, neo Roman looking buildings. But they, they, they wanted to demonstrate a kind of modern, sleek, uh, city. And Chicago had burned down, or at least a lot of it had burned down in the late 19th century. And they had rebuilt it into a very modern city. And, and, um, Chicago had some of the first skyscrapers. And so this was the, the, the image that the image of a new American city, basically. Um, is, is what also the fair was there to reflect. So the buildings were very sleek, very modern. You'd have these big cavernous, uh, um, halls, um, filled with, with the exhibits. And the, they had, um, a, a, it was almost like a, almost like a, 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 a robot looking, you know, statues and, and, and just the look of it was, at the time, so very modern for people. And then on top of that, the technology of the fair, um, you know, was, you know, blended with the architecture. And so they called it, or they wanted to call it the Rainbow City. And they did that to, um, show that this Chicago fair was different than the white city, which was the Chicago fair 40 years before, where everything looked, you know, kind of a snow white classical old fashioned for us looking city. This was going to be new, modern, colorful. And, you know, what they did was they had these beams and bars of light, um, that would shine on the buildings or off the buildings. Um, at night so that, you know, there's, there's postcards and artwork that you can see of the 1933 fair that demonstrates this. Obviously the photographs can't show it, but the, but the artwork does. And the, you know, this, this, these bars of color, the way that the color was, they would have outdoor fountains that are just have color just springing from them. And if you think about the time period, we still have black and white movies, black and white, uh, you know, photographs and so on, um, you know, using color in the way that the 1933 fair did on top of the architecture that, that, that was built, these sleek buildings, these, you know, with, um, you know, when you combine those two together, then that was something that was actually quite revolutionary in a, in a you know, in a visual sense for most people. And if you think of, of, of the United States at the time, a lot of people coming into Chicago at that time, that might be the biggest city they've seen ever. Um, you know, if they, if they've come in from the countryside or from other states, um, and then, then to walk into this space of modern, you know, modernity and color, um, you know, it was, it was, I, I tried to get across this feeling in the book, this feeling of magic and of, of, you know, this is a place unlike anything they've ever seen. And that was what the organizers of the fair were really going for. That, that effect of you are in a, a, a magical place, you know, almost, you know, I won't call it a utopia. They, they tried to call it that, uh, sometimes, but, 
you know, the, even now when we look back at some of the buildings or the photographs of the World's Fair, they look very um, familiar to us even now, a hundred or almost a hundred years later, because of how modern it was. So moving away from the fair, though, you were inspired uh, by your own family history to help create your main character. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, the main character, her name is Rose Mancuso, and she is uh, part Sicilian um, and part Black or African-American. And her family... um, her Italian side of the family are, are an immigrant family that went from Sicily to the United States um, in the early 20th century or late 19th century. And that's very much like my own family. So during the the pandemic, you know, I'm sitting here in Europe. My family is sitting in the United States, um, you know, and I couldn't go home. I have my kids here. And, and so it was just an opportunity for me to think a lot about family in general. Um, and, um, I just started talking to my, my mom in particular, um, and other family members about just family stories, how people were doing. And, um, that really unlocked, uh, something in me where, where sort of naturally these stories started to, um, started to flow into the character I was creating for the book. And so I didn't know it, you know, when I started that that was how it was going to be. But, um, you know, when when thinking about the family in the early 20th century, families that are immigrant families or families that are mixtures of some kind, you know, from different nationalities, different languages, different races, whatever it is. You know, the United States in particular was a place where there was so much movement going on, so many people uh, coming together um, that that there are any story you could think of. Somebody has that background, you know, and and I, I think I missed the fact that there aren't really any stories about families that are like mine, or there, at least there are very few family stories like that. And so, um, you know, I was able to to talk to to my family and get a lot of information about both sides of my family. What happened within my mother's Italian family, um, you know, over time, how how my family relates to me. My family's been great <laughs> with me. I'm, I'm not from a sort of tragic background um, the way my character is. But um, I was able to ask a lot of questions about, you know, how how did my grandparents um, see my mother and my father when they were together? What happened? What did people say? You know, things things like that that I hadn't really asked in the past about my own family. And that flowed into the story. And I and I think that the Italian side of it came out so strongly, partly because I knew I was writing a book about the World's Fair, about the 1933 fair. I was fascinated by Italy's role at the fair. And 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 once I kind of was thinking of the main character, I thought, my God, I already have that connection to Italy. I have it. I have it in my own family. And and so then it was a matter of kind of developing the story um, so that my main character's connection to Italy and this air armada, these pilots that flew from from Italy to the United States would be a sort of natural uh, connection within the story. 
and involving a sort of family story that um, that leads to the World's Fair in the end, and it leads to what ends up being um, a, a big revenge story, you know, that has, you know, all of the hallmarks of of a, of a sort of, I won't call it a Shakespearean story, but you have, you know, betrayal and, and, and murder and, and family, you know, strife and tragedy and all of that sort of that story coming together at the world's fair. And, and it was natural because my family story was already, you know, that thread was already there and I was able to connect it with the Italian story at the fair. All the hooks for a great fiction story set against an amazing historical event. Yeah, I believe that. I I totally believe that. I have, um, obviously, I read a lot in historical fiction. Um, Sinners of Starlight City is my third book. So, so, you know, I've been, um, been writing, you know, in different time periods, not time periods, but in different countries in particular. And every time there's got to be that core of something true. I, I, for me, that has to be the case. It, I love I love historical fiction of any kind. So if it's just a period piece, you know, people living their lives in the past, that's fine too. It doesn't have to be based on a true true event. But I feel that that gives that story such a grounding, such an anchor in the real world when you have have an event like the World's Fair, like these pilots um, that Mussolini sent to Chicago, um, you know, when you can give a story that kind of core truth, then then it makes it um, very exciting to sort of build the the fictional aspect of that world around it. Um, I'm not a person who likes to write real historical people in the sense that, um, you know, my my characters are fictional. Mostly, um, in my second book, which was more was uh, a lot of it was in the Soviet Union. I had uh, Khrushchev, for instance, in some of the scenes, and every word out of, out of his mouth in my book were things that he had actually said. Um, and and so that's a different kind of writing to me, and a different kind of story. And yet, um, that truth that comes from from having either real people or a real event. Um, I, I think that that raises historical fiction up um, to to something really, really special. Um, and even though we know that historical events are often quite controversial, even now, like, in, and if you look at the sources, one source says one thing, another source says something else. <laughs> so, so people might disagree exactly on what the real historical event actually did. And so we as historical fiction writers, um, are interpreting the past in a certain way. And so it shouldn't be, historical fiction shouldn't be used as, as nonfiction. It's not the same thing. But I always hope that my fiction is used as sort of a springboard for somebody to to be to get interested in in an era or get interested in a certain topic, and then you can run off and, and read more about it. <laughs> That's a perfect way to um, yeah. to end to end our podcast. And I'm very much a firm believer of that that historical fiction and period drama on television are great portals into the past of people who may not read much nonfiction, may not have read one at all, you know, at that particular time. And they're great ways for people to to find subjects they're interested in. Yeah, I think people shouldn't be scared of historical fiction. I think there there's there's always that sliver of people who think, oh, you know, they remember the thousand page 
you know, books that, that were more common maybe in the past and had just dripping with detail about everything. I actually love those, but I understand that people are intimidated by that sometimes. But there's so much great contemporary historical fiction that's really pacey and, and wonderful. And so, you know, if, if obviously, you know, people who love history, um, you know, are going to read probably all of it, you know, nonfiction and fiction. I, I love to read both, but historical fiction, it has that sort of special character to, to infuse, infuse life and drama, you know, into, into these past events. Uh, Beth and I were saying just before we came on, um, historical fiction, you have to do so, just as much research as uh, nonfiction writers because um, we, we have what we often refer to as the well actually brigade who every time you write something, they go, well actually I think you're fine, blah 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 and you, <laughs> they, they tend to go after nonfiction writers just uh, onto um, historical fiction writers and go, well clearly you don't know what you're talking about so your research has to be as, just as watertight. Yeah, I mean, it, it is absolutely a lot of work. And, you know, <laughs> sometimes I'm, I wish I had went to university to get a, a, a degree in history. And, and I, I tell myself maybe that would have made it easier. Probably not. But as a journalist, um, you know, I, I approach it the way I would any other kind of story as, as a, as a trained journalist and, um, you know, look at the sources how I can. Um, but with, but with the caveat that I'm not a historian, so I'm not going to, to, to be able to have the, um, the, that, that rigorous, um, you know, scholarship is, is definitely reserved for, for the academics and for, for the real historians. Um, I do not claim that. <laughs> I respect historians so much. I would never claim to encroach on their, on their land. But, um, as a journalist and as a writer, you know, I do my best to find all the sources I possibly can, um, and, and just submerge myself into them. And then as a, as a, as a fiction writer, I set it aside, sit down and write the story because you can't, at least I can't write a story with a, a bunch of notes and dates and things sitting next to me. I, I have it in my head at some point and then, and then it's gone. So it's, a, so it's certainly a different, you know, process, I imagine, than, than a, a historian who's writing a piece of nonfiction for sure, because they, you know, everything needs to be, um, you know, maybe footnoted even, you know, every piece has to, you have to know where it comes from. And I have at least that license of imagination where, um, you know, if I want to say, you know, put something in Mussolini's mouth, you know, I can do it, but it has to be plausible. It has to be, you know, within what we know of Mussolini. So I have to know enough to be able to do that. And, and that in itself is a challenge, but, but I obviously love to do it because I keep writing <laughs> historical fiction. Which is fantastic. Could you just uh, remind everyone the title of your book and when it's available, um, where they can get it? Yeah. The, my latest book is called Sinners of Starlight City. And it came out last week, so it is brand new and fresh. And as far as I know, you can get it everywhere, Waterstones, Independence, um, you know, wherever you get your books. Um, audiobook will be coming out in a couple of months, I think, if you are into audiobooks. Um, ebook is obviously already out as well. And yeah, if you check it out, I hope you enjoy it. It's such a fun book and um, you will know everything you want to know about the World's Fair by the end of it. <laughs> oh, 
I'll talk to the powers to see if we can get it on the uh, online history hack book, bookshop.org so that every time we make a sale, podcast makes a small amount of money. You get more money than if it was sold through a popular website. I'm not even going to make a rainforest joke because I made so many of those. I think uh, the, the, their algorithms and lawyers are after me. But you know what I mean. <laughs> great. Great. Thank you. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on to talk to us. Oh, it was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.